You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Over the past, over the past decade, the U.S. military has spent more than $300 million to protect our men and women in uniform. And it's all on the caveat of this idea. Get the best possible equipment and technology for the most effective battle. Let's face it. Battling in war is costly. If you're going to be at spiritual warfare, it's going to cost you something. This battle is not fought easily. You need the best equipment for the best possible effectiveness. If you don't believe spiritual warfare is real, let me share a story with you. This week, uh, I checked in with some, with some family and friends from my old church home, and they were telling me about a church picnic they had last Saturday. And they were telling me about how it, it doubles as not only just a chance for fellowship, but it also doubles as a chance for um, evangelistic outreach to get for people who are not used to coming in the four walls of church. It's kind of an introduction to the church and the church family. Well, all the reports said that this event went fairly well. In fact, they said that they got quite a few prospects who would possibly attend the church the very next day. And then the very next day, the pastor and his staff came into the church early that morning to find out that all the things that needed for all the all the little details of worship were sorely out of place. Here's what happened. As they walked into the church building, the building was flooded. Purposely. This wasn't a leak. This wasn't a leaky faucet or a bad roof. This was someone turning on all the faucets in the bathrooms in the front of the church and allowing them to run for probably overnight. In addition to this, as they're making their way through the halls of the church trying to figure out how they're going to clean up this mess, they hear a humming in the sanctuary. Can you guess what that was? Their soundboard. Someone had literally taken water and poured it across the soundboard. All they could hear was the humming of electricity as it was coursing through the, sound, uh, through the amplifiers. And they, there's amplifiers on the floor. They tried to pour it on that. There's a soundboard across the table. They poured it on that too. Ladies and gentlemen, spiritual warfare is definitely real. And if you're going to fight, understand that it's going to cost you something If you assume that spiritual warfare is something that you won't pay any penalty for, you're sadly mistaken. Ask any soldier that goes to war, and he tells you about the fact that he's he's mentally drained. Sometimes he's even physically drained, even taking on injury. War is costly, and spiritual warfare is no different. We, We have to learn, we have to understand that in spiritual warfare, In in the idea of spiritual warfare on this earth, nothing is going to be right until Jesus comes back. Nothing will be right. So you have to assume that you need to have the best equipment to get the most effective job done for the kingdom. And for the believer, for the believer, God has provided sufficient protection in the form of armor, in the form of armor, which leads me to the title of our message today, Effective Armor to Make War. Effective armor to make war. In the last couple of chapters of Ephesians, Paul has been giving some practical advice about the Christian walk in Christ, as well as applications in marriage and family and in um, employment. 
But as Ephesians comes to a close, Paul starts to take this drastically different turn and he and he begins to become like an army general who's getting ready to send his troops into battle. And as and this is not strange. This is not a strange thing for Paul to do, because Paul, being a Roman citizen, was very was very much acquainted with Roman soldiers. And he was actually very much infatuated about the about the idea of the Roman soldier. And so this wouldn't be a this wouldn't be kind of a this wouldn't be a strange terminology for him to, for him to talk into. And plus, he has history with the military. If you recall, and early on in Scripture, Paul is in a specific city, and the people are about to mob him when all of a sudden he's saved by a Roman soldier. So Paul has a good bit of history when it comes to this idea of military of military terminology. And so, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul uses this language of war and battle to basically give his final plea to us as Christians about how we should be living the life and fighting the battle, the, the, a battle of spiritual warfare. In verse in chapter in chapter 10, um, I mean, I'm sorry, in chapter six, verse 10, he, he basically gives a charge. He says in the beginning of chapter 10, I mean, the beginning of verse 10, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. First of all, he says, be strong in the Lord. If we're going to be imitators of God, we have to we have to understand that we cannot trust in our own ability to win the war. The word strong comes from the word in in dynamo in dynamo. I'm sorry, which basically means in union with the Lord. So what that means is he is the one who gives us strength. Think about that. The ability that you have to fight spiritual warfare does not come from you. It comes from the father who gives it to you. Your strength comes from God. He's the one who gives us the strength that we need to fight the battle. And think about it. If our strength and our ability, if our strength lies in the ability of the Lord, it's because he's the one who's given us power for the Christian faith. Then guess what? The way our the way our walk should look is like this equation. It should not be my ability minus God ability, because guess what? If it's my ability minus God's ability, that's your confidence. We cannot fight spiritual warfare in our own confidence. Instead, we have to fight it in a different way. And in fact, in the end of verse 10, he tells us, he says, in the strength of his might. So in other words, the equation should go like this. It should say, God's ability is my confidence. We should not be fighting in our own strength. You know, a lot of times we have a we have a tendency to struggle with this idea that God can do anything, that God can help us in our situation. And you may say to you may say to yourself, but hey, Reggie, listen, you don't know my situation. Surely the God of heaven and earth cannot fix it. Well, I submit that he can. And not only that, he has given us confidence, but not your confidence to fix it, not your earthly tools to fix it, not your money to fix it, not your knowledge to fix it, but his knowledge his resources, his ways, his word, and his confidence. It is because he, God, is greater than us or I. In fact, remember in John 3.30, remember? John the Baptist says this plainly. He says, listen, I must decrease so that he can increase. So we know that when we fight the battle, we cannot fight in our own strength. And that's what it means to be strong in the Lord, trusting in his ability versus our ability, which we should not trust in. Next, in verse 11, he gives a defense. After giving a charge, he gives defense. He tells us that we must put on the full armor of God so that we'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So in other words, so not only does God charge us with this defense, but then he says, listen, God gives us armor. God gives us armor to, to deal with this. 
What kind of armor? He says, put on the full armor of God. Make note of that. Full armor, meaning complete. This complete armor came with everything from a shield, sword, lance, helmet, greaves, and breastplate. There was a lot of, there was a lot of things to wear. I mean, there were a lot of things that a soldier had to put on to prepare for war. And he's, and Paul is saying, listen, you cannot be effective without the full armor. If you lack any part of the armor, you leave yourself open to the offense of the enemy. You have to be fully covered in the armor of God. And what do we defend against? It tells us what? It tells us that we may be able to stand firm against the schemes of who? The devil. We can only stand firm against against the the devil's schemes with a complete armor. The word, the the Greek word for, the, the Greek word for schemes in this case is methodia. And it basically means deceit or trickery. We can stand on our own against the devil, but listen, we're not promised a strong stand without the Lord. Um, you may have already, you just heard it mentioned, and it's funny because I was going to quote that verse about the seven sons of Sceva and about how they tried to do things in their own strength. And when they tried to do things in their own strength and with, with the less of a reputation as they had, guess what? The demons made, I mean, the demons, I don't know why I said demon, but anyway, um, the demons made quick work of these, of these sons of Sceva, right? And so we can't do things in our, so we can't do things in our, um, in our own strength. And remember that the armor that we have is of spiritual substance. Next, after giving a charge and a defense, he gives the warning. He says, and it says in verse 12, it says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of, of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of, wick, of wickedness in the heavenly places. So first of all, when he gives this warning, he basically points this picture. Paul is basically saying, listen, your opponents are not who you think they are. Just in case you think you got your opponent's peg, they're not who you think they are. In fact, he makes it clear that it's going to be a struggle. He makes this very clear in the very part of the verse. He says, for our struggle. Now, the picture of that word struggle in the Greek is how many of you guys are familiar with um, high school wrestling probably? Okay, how many of you are familiar with WWE and all that, too? Just in case, I know some, there may be some wrestling fans in here. All right, the picture of struggle is the picture of two wrestlers locking arms and physically tussling, all right? And it's this idea that one or the other person is not going to go down easily. It's, a, it's, a, it's an actual picture of people struggling, pushing against each other, but yet both are not budging. So in other words, it's, it's going to be a struggle. It's going to be a fight. In fact, let me put it in a sports context. Usually when we, in sports, when a team, how many, many, many of you guys are sports fans, when you're probably looking, at, looking forward to football season, as I am too, but there's an idea of, as a fan, there's a time when a lot of us, if you're like me, you'll pull up your favorite team schedule and try to look ahead and see what the season's like, right? And so you see probably more than likely two things on the schedule. Number one, you see what we like to call the easy ones, right? The ones where your team, where, you know, by all intents and purposes, your team is probably going to run over that team. And then you got the tough games or the rubber games or the games that could, the rubber matches, the ones that can go either way depending on it, right? Think about it. When it comes to the easy games, what's our demeanor? What's our demeanor? Uh, we got this. Oh, uh, yeah, we're playing who? The Cleveland Browns? Sure. Oh, this is easy. Listen, I'm, I'm not going to stay in Cleveland this whole time. Somebody will go ahead and book me a flight somewhere else because I know this is going to be an easy one, right? We, try to, we make sure that our confidence is probably way above what it should be. 
We actually take these teams lightly as if they, have, they don't even have the skill set to match up with you. And to some degree, that may be true in some points. But then when it comes to those rubber matches, those tough games, what do you do? You not only start thinking about how tough the game is going to be, right? You start preparing yourself for whether you win or whether you lose because you feel like it could go either way. There's a sense of preparation. There's a sense of urgency there. And that's the type of urgency. And that's what we need to have as Christians. We need to, we need to, always, take, we need to always take up the idea that when the struggle comes against the enemy, we need to understand that there could be a win or there could be a loss. We need to have a sense of urgency. We should not walk up and look at the enemy as if he's slight work. He's light work. We should look at him as if, if I'm not careful, he could take me down. If I'm not careful, he could find my weak spot and and deal with me tragically. We need to have a sense of urgency. And that brings me to my next point about that, about this whole idea of um, struggling in, um, I mean, struggling in spiritual warfare is, do we take spiritual warfare seriously? Do we really take it seriously? To quote the pastor, we have an enemy. And the reality of it is, this enemy wants to take us out any way he possibly can. What will he use? He'll use your desires. He'll use your job. He'll use your family and friends. He may even use your own perception of your own knowledge to deceive you into thinking that you got it all together or to deceiving you into the fact that you may not have it all anyway. We have to take spiritual warfare seriously, people. War is real. There are many people who have, who have fought and won, but there are also a battlefield of people who have died and lost. And we have to understand that not only is it our job to fight the battle and get to the end, but it's our job to help the other soldiers around us make it to the end. The Christian walk cannot be a, listen, <laughs> every man for himself. It cannot be that. If you are every man for yourself, you are going to die easily in the Christian walk. But if you pick up your friends, if you pick up your families, if you pick up, if you pick up everyone who is a believer or a friend, we can push, we can help push them onto the finish line and we can all say that we made it together. But don't take it personally. Don't take it easily. Understand this is that our duty as Christian soldiers it's a, we, need to be, we need to be on duty everywhere. We need to be on duty in the church, of course, on your job, at your house, in front of your TV, in your stereo, right? right? You need to be accountable in all these different ways. And it, can be, and it can be a struggle. And you know, it's funny that our technology is increasing, and, and it's it so amazing that how the technology is increasing in such a way where the things that you think you would think that, hey, there's no way a person could slip in this area, they'll find a way to slip in that area, right? You know, you think about things like phones. You know, a few years ago, you look at a phone, you go, harm can you do with a phone, right? Man, a phone can be your worst enemy now, right? A phone could break up your marriage, you know? A phone could steal time from your mate. A phone can make you, you know, can make you numb to the to what's going on in life, right? Because you're so worried about your next status, or, or the, you know, or how many angry birds you can knock down, or, or how many candy crushes you can crush, and all this different stuff. So you got to be on, you got to be on duty. You got to be on alert that these things can sometime, can can sometime pull the rug from right up under you. And remember, 
Not only are we fighting, not only are we fighting a struggle, and not only is it serious, but who are we fighting against? Keep looking in verse 12. It tells us, it gives us a bevy of people who we're fighting against here. But first it qualifies. It says, your, your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, flesh and blood in this, in this sense is referring to physical man or beast. I find it interesting that he uses a word there that, now, that covers, um, that covers be, any being with flesh, right? He didn't, he didn't just say it was the enemy or, I mean, it's not your, your fellow man. He says it's not your man or beast. And just to think about that for just a moment, a lot of times we think that the people who are our enemies or that coworker that we don't like, or that person who always gives us the, the stink eye. You know, we always think that that person is the one who really, you know, who's really all against us. In reality, we need to look at a, we need to look at a deeper issue. The deeper issue is, where's, what about the state of their soul? Maybe they're like that because they don't know who Jesus is. Maybe we need to be the ones to penetrate all of that and try to show them who Christ is. Is if, we're, if we're not so spiteful towards people, we just may find out that, hey, listen, they're just as concerned as you are about their own lives and about the people around them. It's just that because they don't know you is why they're spiteful. And there may be some spiritual things going on there that may cause them to do evil and harm towards you, but we have to remember that inside they have a soul, and that soul can be won by Jesus. But now, after saying not who we're not against, then it goes on to tell us who we are against. In verse 12, it says, it says, first of all, it mentions rules of darkness. And this refers more so than anything to the origins of darkness, where the evil comes from. Okay, and then it talks about the powers, world forces that includes Satan and his demons. And then and then this idea of darkness the word darkness, and here's, here's a working definition of what the word darkness is really talking about in that passage. It's talking about the ignorance of respecting divine things and the human duties, all right? So in other words, it's this idea that, number one, a person is, is kind of is ignorant toward, the thing, toward things that are spiritual, but then they're also ignorant toward um, basically human respect and, and doing what's right, so to speak, so to speak, righteousness or integrity, all right. So this person is considered. So these things are considered to be in darkness. After he gives this warning, after he gives a charge uh, and a defense in 11, then he gives a warning in verse 12. Next, he gives a conclusion of this warning in verse 13. He says, now that you know what you're supposed to do, now that you know what the defense is and how we need to defend ourselves. And now that you know who your enemy is, now you need to take up the full armor. He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. First of all, he tells us to resist. Res- I mean, in that, in, that, in that passage, he tells us to resist. And so, of course, to resist means to fight against. But then he tells us to do it in the evil day. In other words, to do it in a time of danger. I guess it's safe to say that we're in a time of danger. <laughs> do you think so? We live in a world now where, where life is just thrown away. We live in a world now where, where it, it doesn't matter what you think as long as you have enough money. We live in a world where the standard doesn't matter. It's how far you can push that standard and make other people accept your standard. We live in a world, we live in a world of danger. I, I read one of the most heart-wrenching stories on the Internet the other day. And sometimes when you turn on the news, it can just, it can, it can just kind of ruin your day and make you think to yourself, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly. I read a story about a young lady. Um, I can't remember what state or um, how old she was, 
But basically she was arrested because she put her child in the oven. She put, I want y'all to get that now. They didn't, the child didn't, the child was not playing around the oven and got burned. She physically put her child in the oven purposely. Now, folks, if that ain't evil, what is? Please tell me so I can have a better definition of what evil is. This is a dangerous day. We need to be on guard. And on top of that, he tells us in the conclusion of this warning, he says, listen, having, and he mentions his statement in the middle, he says, after resisting an evil day, he says, having done everything. In other words, going through every struggle of the fight. You know, we have a tendency during our Christian walk to kind of, when we need to be serious, we kind of, you know, we start being serious. And but then when it's not, when you feel like it's not that big of a deal, you kind of slack off. Right. Think about it. We do that at work sometimes, don't we? We do that in, in, in relationships sometimes, don't we? Right. When it's serious. Oh, I need to be serious. I need to make sure I'm you know, doing everything. You know, kind of like what Brother Jeff talked about last week when we were at work. Right. Boss pass it by. Yeah, I was just typing that report. Right. You know, but then there are times when we take a day off. Right. Or we, we slack off a little bit. Right. We need to be on guard all times because you don't know what when you don't know what evil's thinking and when they're going to do something. You have to be ready at all times. And having the armor of God gives you the maximum amount of chance to win the battle. So in other words, and I'm going to get to this in just a minute, explaining what all the pieces of the armor are and, what, and why you need them all, is if you try to fight without a belt, without the belt, the belt of truth fully intact, you're going to lessen your chances of effectively fighting well. You need all pieces of the armor. Don't not put on the helmet because you think it's too heavy. Don't not wield the sword because you think you can do without it, right? He tells us to put on the full armor. Use it all because you need it all. And so with that being said, with that being said, then he basically calls us to take up the armor. And let's look at the armor, and we're going to look at all the effectiveness of each piece of the armor here. It tells us in verse 14, it says, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, there are two pieces of armor mentioned in that, in that um, scripture. And the first one is basically the girdle or the belt of truth. For those of you guys who don't know what a girdle is, does anybody know what a girdle is, right? I see some heads nodding. Okay, great. All right. So in other words, you can think of it as being like a belt that holds things in place, right? I need a girdle. But anyway, um, so, so he have, you're having the girdle. I mean, having your loins girded with truth, all right? And now this belt, this belt of truth, the whole point of a girdle or the belt of truth is to hold things in place. Now, keep in mind that the, the girdle is not actually a part of the armor. However, you need it, all right? The Roman soldiers needed the, needed the belt because they had to put this on before they put on anything else. The belt of truth is what held up the rest of the armor, and not only that, it, it was tied in several places. So it wasn't just like hooked around in the front. It was hooked in various places. So that means that if a soldier was fighting in battle, he had the freedom to move, but keep everything in place. All right. And not only that, on that on that belt was all the equipment. So that means if they needed some rations, it was on their belt. If they needed some if they needed some some darts on their belt, if they needed rope, it's on their belt. It's all and they could keep all of that on them without losing a step. Now, with this being said, they also would take trinkets from their from previous conquest and they would also sew them in their belts as a reminder of the war's past. So it's kind of a reminder of, hey, 
you know, listen, this is a trinket from the time I almost died of, over in Carthage or something. And they were, and they were southern their better as a reminder of how, how tough battles can get and how much they needed to stay, in, stay, on, um, stay on duty. Now, here's the thing about the, the belt of truth. You see, if truth is the essential that holds together our armor in spiritual warfare, without truth, there is no life. Quoting Jesus on there, right? He says, he is the way, the truth, and the light, right? Right? He says that no one goes to the Father except through him, right? Without him, there is no life. Not only that, truth holds together knowledge. So that means that if you're not equipped with truth, your knowledge is not going to withstand deceit. You need to study it. You know, the truth is so sturdy that no matter what situation we encounter, truth will always equip, hold, and support us no matter what we go through. And there are two types of truth, and I'm just going to mention them really quickly here. You got, you got subjective truth. This is the world's favorite thing, subjective truth, right? This is basically truth based on personal understandings and experience, right? I believe this is true because I went through it, right? I believe this is the way it should be because I experienced this, right? Well, then there's another type of truth, and this is the type of truth that God deals in, objective, objective truth. Now, this truth is the type of truth that holds together no matter what you put it against. It always wins. And that's the type of truth God is where it wants in you guys. That's the type of truth he wants in me. He wants objective truth, all right? So when someone says that, you know, you know, listen, I think that homosexual people should be married, right? We have to remind them that God's objective truth outside of your bias, your understanding and feeling says that this is not what he commands, all right? So with that being, and so, and so let me tell you a little bit about, let me give you one last thing about that, about the belt or girdle of truth. Without the belt of girl or girdle of truth, your character is affected. Meaning that if you caught in a war and you don't have on the belt of truth, you know what's going to suffer? Your character. Your character's going to die. You're not going to be able to, you're not going to know your left from your right. People are not going to believe you. When you do mention, when you, when you do mention things, people are gonna, not going to trust what you say. Because, because they haven't been able to trust you in the past. Without the girdle of truth, nothing else holds up. In verse 14 also, it mentions having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now, the breastplate function is it protects the body on both sides, meaning front and back, all right? And it protects from basically from the neck down to the midsection, all right? Its function um, its function simply is to protect all of your, um, your back and your front uh, upper body. Now, righteousness refers to the integrity. It refers to virtue or the correctness of thinking and acting. In other words, it's like the practice of doing good things, right? The practice of doing good things. If we neglect to wear the integrity, if we neglect to wear integrity during spiritual warfare, we're going to leave a gaping hole in our armor. Can you imagine going to battle with everything except for a breastplate protecting your back and your front, and they have swords, you're leaving yourself open to a lot of offense, aren't you? Without integrity, our heart becomes vulnerable and to the enemy's deceit. That means that anybody can tell us anything, and it fools us, and we'll be okay with that. In other words, without the breastplate of righteousness, our desires of good die the very thing that keeps us going, the integrity we have in God dies out. Verse 15, in verse 15 it says, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
The best way to think about this is being sandals. Um, the function of the sandal, firm footing for battle. The shoes probably actually um, are, are somewhat like the shoes, I think the sandals that are popular with ladies now, like the sandals with the one thong probably across the foot and many, many different straps. It probably looks something equivalent to that, with the exception of, with the exception of it had nails in the sole for firm, for firm footing. So, so imagine a sandal like that with tacks in the bottom of it for firm, for firm footing. Now, these, and it says, and the Bible says, it says that they're having shod, okay? The word shod basically means to bind or to tie. So it's the idea of, listen, tie your shoes on, right? Tie on your shoes for the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, the gospel is the firm foundation to stand on when people attack doctrinal truths of scripture. It's not only saving grace, but assurance and confidence. How do we know that? Hold your finger on Ephesians chapter, I mean, Ephesians chapter 6 and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Um, 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 15 and 16. And I'm going to quickly read this. Um, it says, but sanctify, but, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Verse 16 says, and keep a good conscience so that in the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. The gospel has so much assurance, so much truth in it, so much of a, so much of a confidence in it that if we stick to it, it will prove itself over and over again. The gospel, in a sense, doesn't need defending in a sense, because it's always been true, it will continue to be true, and it will be remaining true throughout the ends of time. All we have to do is hold steadfast to what God says in his holy word, and it will defend itself. The best way I've heard it um, put into context is the gospel is like a lion in a cage. Just let him out, and he'll, and he'll, he'll prove to you how bad he is. All right? All right? He's a lion. You just need to unlock the cage. All right. And also go back to Ephesians in, ver- in Ephesians chapter four, verses four. I mean, verse 14, it tells us that we basically don't want to get carried by the wind, the, by the wind and waves. If, if you want, let me read it really quick. It says, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there. And what, I mean, by the waves and carried by the wind of every doctrine, by the trickery of men, by the craftiness and deceitful scheming. So in other words, then when we see things in life, like we see things on TV, when we see things in magazines, when we hear people say, when popular people say things that may seem so very thought-provoking, we're not carried and tossed away by what they say because we understand that the, the foundation that we have, the truth that we have is based on the gospel of peace or the gospel of truth. Without the gospel of peace on your feet, your strength of conviction is acceptable. If you don't know what you're convicted about, if you don't have a true, accurate depiction of what you're convicted about, you're going to fall for anything. So you have to be ready to defend. You have to be on firm footing, ready to, ready to be prepared to share the gospel of peace. Now, in verses 16 and 17, he gives some additional equipment. It says in verse 16, he says, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, all right, the shield of faith. The function of the shield is to protect the body from external attack. In fact, it's additional protection. The shield was more than likely an oblong 
four, I mean, four-cornered shield, and it was usually somewhere between four feet by two and a half feet. All right, so it was enough where you could probably kind of crouch behind it and um, stay away from arrows. So this was a pretty, it was a good picture of um, us taking away the, I mean, keeping arrows from hitting our person. Now, faith is the assurance of all things. I mean, the, the assurance of, all, of things hoped for and the convictions of things not seen, which is according to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. But now the shield of faith protects us from spiritual arrows of the wicked. And keep in mind that these spiritual arrows are not visibly seen, meaning you have to, you have to possess a sense of assurance that you're, being, that you're being protected. Kind of a thought. Without the shield of faith, our hope is affected. If, we're, if we don't have the shield of faith protecting us, our hope, our hope that one day God's going to come back and make everything right that's wrong, our faith that one day we're going to get to go to heaven, all of that is affected. And also in verse, I mean, in verse 17, it says, take the helmet of salvation the, and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The, the helmet of salvation, the function of the helmet to protect the head from injury. But the helmet of salvation in a spiritual sense, it protects the soul in the hope of salvation. It protects the mind, which are, the, which are gated by the eyes and ears from being confused by the world around them, as well as the tricks and deception. It also, it also protects you from the attacks coming from the flesh, from the world, or even the devil. It also protects you from, the helmet of salvation also protects you against the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and it gives hope for deliverance. Without the helmet of salvation, your eternal security is threatened. Your belief that God is the one who helps us get to the end who makes it to help us make it to the end, that's affected. We need to wear the helmet of salvation. Verse 17, again, the sword of the spirit. The sword has an obvious, the sword has a very obvious function. It's additional protection. But notice one thing, it's specifically for offense. Out of all the things we just named, out of everything we just named in, in all the armor, God only gave us one thing for offense. Think about that. And everything else in the scriptures tells us, he tells us what? He tells us to defend, right? He tells us to resist. He tells us to stand firm. He tells, and all those are defensive moves. All of, they, all of those things are defense. There's only one piece of offense he gives us, and that's the word of God. The only offense we have against the tricks of the enemy is our sword, the word of God. And the word of God, and the word of God described in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, verse 12 tells us that the word is living and active. It tells us that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It tells us that it's able to judge thoughts and intentions of the heart. And, and, how, and how amazing is it that God has given us this awesome weapon of scripture, keeping in mind that he, he all throughout history, God had to effectively come up with a book that could cover any area of life, any situation, everything we could possibly think of. And yet throughout time, he had this book put together and he brought it to me and you and basically tells us that, hey, you want to fight? You want the answer to life? You want the answer to your troubles? It's in the scriptures. It's in the scriptures. All right. It don't, we, don't need to, we don't need to take away from it like some people do. 
We don't need to add to it like some people do, <laughs> but we need to accept it as it is. And listen, a, a, a personal note, listen, if you come across something that's difficult, it's okay, all right? But one thing remains the same, okay? God's word. Don't take away from it. Don't add to it. Accept it as it is. And when you struggle, listen, you look to, listen, you look to godly men who've written books. You look, to, you look to prayer. You look to all these different things to make sure that you understand what God is saying to you, all right? So with all these things being said, we have all of this armor, right? We have all these things we use, right? We have, these, we have a helmet. We have a shield. We have a sword. We have all these different things, right? But now, if you're like me, you can become a skeptical, you can become a, um, a skeptical, skeptical, well, I can't say skeptical, um, customer, right? Think about it. When you're in a store and you're looking at a product, right, your question is always what? How good is this really, right? When you see, when you see those infomercials, right, you see a product and it tells you it can dice potatoes in 20 ways and, and read a book to you, right? You're like, yeah, right. Can you really do that? Well, I submit to you, so the question becomes this, what? How effective is the armor of God. Is it really as effective as it says it is? Or is it just, is, or is it all just media hype? Is it all just conjecture or some type of hype that somebody said and we all believe and it's not really true? Turn to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 59. Just a little bit of a, an Old Testament reference to this armor of God idea. Isaiah 59, starting at verses 15 through 17. Now, just to kind of give you a little bit of context of what's going on right here. Um, in Isaiah, there is a separation from God. The people of, the people of God are straying. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on. And in the midst of it, um, this scripture basically is starting to talk about the fact that among all these, all the wickedness going on, you know, there's no one to intercede. There's no one to defend. There's no one to go out and be able to judge because they're wicked, <laughs> wicked people, right? And that's kind of the context of what you, and when you, in which you read Isaiah 59. Starting at verse 15, it says this. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself prey. But now the Lord saw what was displeasing in his sight. There was no justice, that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and, there, and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. Verse 17, he put on righteousness like a breastplate. That sound familiar? A helmet of salvation on his head. Hmm. He put garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. For the believer, fighting spiritual warfare with a, full arm, with a full armor is essential. The effectiveness of the armor is just as effective as the giver of the armor, in this case, God. And how can we be sure of this? And I hope you guys see this. God himself uses these same instruments to intercede on behalf of us, the same thing he used to intercede and judge, he's given them to us. He gave them to us to defend ourselves. Wait a minute, let me say that again, because I don't think y'all got that. that. That blows me up. Listen, the very thing that God uses to dispense justice, 
to give salvation, to help us in every situation possible, God not only used these tools, he said, hey, listen, you take this, you use it. You defend yourself against the enemy with my armor, the very thing that I use to save you, to intercede for you, to give justice to you, to give you righteousness. And not only that, he also in this passage gives out vengeance. And guess what? He, did he say anything about vengeance in those Ephesians passages? No. You know why? He is the only one who can give out vengeance. It's not our place. It's not our job. He exclusively alone can do that. But yet for everything else, he's given us everything to survive the, the war. Everything. And so the question becomes, is the armor effective? Yes, it is. The armor is more than effective. God uses it his own self and has been successful in giving us salvation and giving us righteousness through Jesus, using Jesus to intercede for us when we fall short. Is it effective? Yes. The only problem is, will we take it up and use it? Will we take it up and use it? Go back to Ephesians chapter 6. I want you to see this last thing, and I'm about to show it up, I promise. <laughs> In Ephesians chapter 6, go back to verse, starting at verse, at verse 10, right? How do we know that we, you know... We know that the armor is effective because we'll have to be able to use it. How do we know that it's a choice of ours to use it? What in verse 10 it says what? It tells us to be strong. In verse 11, it tells us to put on. In verse 13, it tells us to take up. Verse 14, you stand firm. It says in 15, you put on the sandals. It says in 16, you take it up. In verse 17, it, 17, it tells you to take on the helmet of salvation. The armor is only effective if you use it. What, what does that mean for you and me? That means this. If we're going to fight a spiritual war, we need to actually use the armor that God has given us so that we can win. And God tells us in his word that if we don't take up the full armor, you're going to lose. Do you believe in salvation? Do you believe that God is the one who takes us and carries us to the end? Do you believe that God's faith is enough to get you through the tough times you're going through? Do you really believe that? If you really believe that there's a spiritual war going on, if you really believe that God has equipped you to do everything with his armor of God, then you should use it. We should have no excuse of why we don't, why things are going wrong. Listen, war, war is cruel. You're going to have times when it's going to feel like the whole earth is against you. But yet you need to be reminded of what? Your assurance in God, your assurance in the gospel of peace, wearing the helmet of salvation, being protected by the shield of faith, knowing that, hey, even though I'm going through the worst time of my life, even though this life is hard and it has all of its twists and turns, and just when I think I understand, it all changes again. God assures us that if we wear this armor, we will be able to stand firm and we'll be able to resist. The question is, will you take it up? Will you use it as it was intended? Because not only does it intend us to use it, but then go back to, go back to um, Ephesians chapter um, 
verse 13, he, affects, he expects us to use it exhaustively. How? I know that. He says, having done everything. He didn't say just, hey, listen, use it, and if it don't work, call me back and I'll find something else. He says, listen, did you use it? Yeah, I use it. Did you use it exhaustively? Did you trust in it at every single moment to the moment you died? That is what God is concerned with. Our spiritual warfare should not be a one, one shot of a gun. Our spiritual warfare should be constantly loading the tank with more and more bullets and shooting back. If we are going to be people of God who love him, who want to seek his face, who want to truly live for him, we're going to have to take up the armor and we're going to have to keep it on. And not only do we keep it on, we keep it on to the very last moment. And be assured that no matter what, if you die during the war, if you become a casualty during the war, you have assurance in Jesus that when you die, when your body lays on the floor of that battlefield, no matter whether it's in your home, whether it's out somewhere else, whether it's on the mission field or wherever else, God promises you that, listen, you won't ever have to struggle anymore. You'll be with your king, your savior, your comforter, your salvation, Jesus if you don't know who Jesus is, you can't access the armor. Armor is exclusive for those who believe and fight with Jesus. If you don't know who Jesus is, the armor is futile. But yet, be encouraged believers, if you know who Jesus is, take up the armor. Take it up steadfastly, stand firm, and you do it until you can't do it anymore. Amen. Let's stand. For some of us, God is calling us into a relationship. God has called us into a relationship where we are being urged, if we're going to be a part of this war, to quote, to quote one of the songs we sing here at Southside, if we're going to really be part of the war, we're going to have to wave our white flag. We're going to have to surrender to Jesus. How do we surrender to Jesus? Jesus tells us this. He tells us this. If we lay down our lives, we take up his, we have something better than what we had before. God promises us this. If we wave our white flag and surrender and say, God, I am a mess. I cannot save myself. I have no hope without you. If we trust in that, God tells us that he will make a swap with us, a divine exchange, if you will. He'll take your sin, the very thing that keeps you from being all the things that God wants you to be, and he replaces it with his righteousness. And when he replaces it with his righteousness, when you stand before God, when God sees you, he sees Jesus. Not because you've done anything, not because you won a lot of medals in your battles, but because Jesus won the ultimate battle and paid with his life. 
with that, you get to experience the joy, the peace, the assurance that you will one day get to meet your Savior in heaven. That you have eternal security, that no matter what happens in this life, when you die, you go to be with Jesus. And God wants to give you that, but you have to wave your white flag. Put yourself down. Listen, you may be worried about your, you're probably worried about what people are going to think about you, about how you're going to go back home and fix all the troubles that you may. Jesus tells you, listen, you put that down. You worry about me first. You focus on me. I'll help you fix all the rest of that, but you got to trust me. Make a step of faith. Trust in God for your entire life, for your entire being, and for your salvation. And it's going to be a tough road. I just told you, it's a struggle. But you know the best thing about it? You will win with Jesus. Amen. You will win with Jesus, but you can't win on your own. If there's anyone right now who, want, who wants to know who Jesus is, we're asking you to come forward. We're going to ask counselors, please, to move forward. Brother Jeff will be here to receive people if needed. Um, counselors also, we'll ask you that you come to the front. Don't lose this moment. Take up your shield. Fight for the cause of Christ. Defend it with all your might because he's worthy and he's the only one which ensures you total victory in Jesus. Amen. Dear God, I thank you for this day and I thank you for this opportunity, God, I have to share. God, I pray that you would just use that message in some way, somehow. God, I know that there are many struggles going on in this room, God. And God, I know that you can be with them. You are with them, God, if they only trust in you. God, help us to take up the armor in every situation. Help us to understand what it means, God, when we fight alongside of you. God, let us see our struggle, God, not against men, God, but against, but, but against, the, against the evilness, God, the wickedness, the spiritual things going on in high places, Lord. God, help us to understand, God, what it really means to be for you. And God, if there's anyone, God, who hasn't trusted their life to you, God, God, I pray that they would just wave their white flag right now, God, and surrender. God, that they would say to themselves right now, God, that I surrendered, Lord. I give myself unto you, God. I lay down my selfishness, my pride, and my arrogance and everything that comes with it, Lord. No matter how much of a mess my life is, Lord, I want to know who you are. I know that your son Jesus died for me, and I know, Lord, that if I trust in him and his salvation, Lord, then I will be saved. And, Lord, I know that I'll spend eternity in heaven with you if only I accept your son Jesus, which is the only name on which man can be saved. In Jesus' name.